Who are you? Who are we as people, uh, as humans? There's the who are we question, but there's also the what on earth are we here for question. Um, They go hand in hand, don't they? And I think one way to begin to answer this question, to try to unpack who are we as people, what are we doing here on this earth, well, one way is to actually say, well, where did we come from? How did we get here? Who made us? Did someone make us? Or is it all just random chance? That's the question I think we actually need to start with, because if we learn where we've come from, uh, if we learn that there's a creator, that there's a maker, then it might just start to help us understand what our purpose is, uh, why we as humans actually exist, what we're doing here on this earth. And, and I think if we can start to understand that, then we might start to begin to understand who we really are as people. So typically there are a couple of ways to approach uh, this first question of where have we come from. Uh, there's the purely scientific approach, there's the way that Modern science might do it. Uh, modern science will tell us that we've simply evolved. Uh, evolutionary theory teaches that there is no ultimate creator. Um, you go right back and it's just random chance. Uh, whereas people are simply the product of who knows? Is it just random? Uh, you go back far enough and evolutionary theory uh, will say that at some time in history possibly billions of years ago, uh, life started and it became a little bit like this. Uh, Life started uh, with a little one-celled creature uh, that kind of started maybe in a pool of slime or something like that. And as the years passed, uh, slow changes, mutations apparently took place. So from that one little uh, one-celled creature, uh, you know, maybe a fish the fish family developed. After that came amphibians, like frogs, if you're not sure what an amphibian is. Uh, Then came reptiles, then came birds, then came mammals. Then from that, eventually, came humans. Uh, From from this understanding of how we uh, got here, you could say that that who we are as people is that we're just slime plus time. Uh, We're... (laughs) We're just developed from random chance. Uh, over the millions of years, uh, there's been this kind of competition uh, where the survival of the fittest has been going on, where the, the weak and the vulnerable just cease to exist. But those that survive, well, it seems that we as humans, we've come out on top. Uh, we've done pretty well. We've evolved. We've developed. We're at the top of the chain. And for some reason, we've got a s- stick. You know, <laughs> I think we should have a MacBook or something. You know, a MacBook and a flat white. I think that's, you know, anyway, but that's just me. Um, but when you think about it, you know, that kind of idea that we just slime plus time, it, it doesn't really satisfy our longing for an answer to who we really are. Sorry? Oh, yeah, that's all right. I just made it black. Yep. Um, I'll keep clicking through. Um, I mean, how do you actually feel being told that that's what you are? You know, that you've just kind of come about and you're just a piece of slime. Uh, Not meaning to insult you, but that's kind of what evolutionary theory will say, that there's, there's actually no ultimate meaning in life. There's no purpose. There's no glorious purpose. There's no end goal in mind. It's just that we compete to survive and then eventually we'll die. 
that's life. That's who we are. Uh, evolution, at its heart, says that life is simply a survival of the fittest. Uh, it doesn't matter who gets in the way. Our purpose is simply to fight to survive. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes me wonder that if that's true of us, if that's who we really are, then why do we have this sense in us? Why do we have this kind of sense in us that we actually care about other people? Uh, why is it that we have compassion for the weak and needy? I mean, if it's in our DNA that we're just meant to compete and fight and survive and be the fittest ones, then why do we care about the vulnerable? Why is it that when we uh, flick through the TV screens, we want to keep flicking through when we see that ad of the World Vision kids who are starving to death? Because it makes us feel so sad and it just affects us so much to see the weak and the vulnerable in life. Why is it that we have this? Why, why do we have emotions like pity uh, if, if it's all just random chance? Why do we care about each other? Why do we love each other? I think these are some of the questions we need to ask. Uh, and if we're going to find an answer to that question, uh, I think the Bible, the Bible actually gives us some very good answers to that question. Uh, the Bible, as we looked at last week, is God's word to us. God has spoken. He's revealed himself to us. And God as our creator actually shows us that our world is not completely random. Uh, Life is not simply about surviving and competing. It's not about just pushing and shoving people out of the way in order to survive. No, life is actually its more about relating. It's about loving each other like God does. The Bible says that we're actually here on earth, we created, we're placed in this earth by God so that we would love one another. That's our purpose. Uh, in fact, not only that, but the Bible tells us uh, some more wonderful things about who we are as people. It tells us that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, the Bible says that we have been created in God's image. Uh, our God uh, is a God who exists. We, we see in the Bible he exists in perfectly loving relationships. Father, Son and Spirit, they love each other. Uh, the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit love each other, and they love the Father. It's kind of this circle of loving relationships, this little micro-community of three people who just love each other. We have a God who lives in perfectly loving relationships. And what we see as we open up our Bibles is that God has made us humans in his image like that. Uh, we've been made to love like God loves we were, we were created in a community. The first people wasn't just one person, it was two. Uh, created in community, people who would love each other more than they love themselves, that they would love like God loves. Uh, we'll touch on that a little bit later. Uh, but tonight what we're going to do is we're going to work through six different points, uh, six points that you'll find on your outline, uh, about who we are as people. Uh, these points, they all flow out of the biblical narrative. Uh, and point number one, the first thing we see as we open up our Bibles, uh, is that we as humanity are first and foremost created. If you've got a Bible in front of you, if you want to open up to Genesis chapter 1, 
as you skim through that first chapter in the Bible, what we see is that God is just setting to work to create, to make this world, to, to build everything that we see and that we know. On day one, God separates the light from the darkness. On day two, he separates the waters from the skies. On day three, the sea from the land. and He makes the plants grow. On day four, he fills the heavens with lights, with the sun, the moon and the stars. On day five, he fills the sky with birds, fills the sea with animals, with fish. Day six, he fills the land with animals. Just kind of six days of just creating, of making, of separating, of filling, all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, he just kind of stops. You read through that narrative, he kind of just stops, he steps back and he makes a little summary statement. He goes, good. Chapter 1, verse 25, he says, it's good. What I've made is good. But something's missing. That's not yet very good. Uh, so what does God do? Well, chapter 1, verse 26, he says these words. Have a look there. Verse 26 to 28, he says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Then verse 27, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God creates mankind, you see, and you notice that mankind's actually on a different level to the animals. Uh, You might have noticed when you skim through that first chapter that that God seems to just go about creating all these things. He creates the sun, the moon and the stars. He creates the the land and the sea and all these things, but, but then he stops. And he does something different when he gets to mankind. The thing that he does different is that he stops and he speaks to them. I don't know if you noticed that. In chapter 1, verse 28, you can read there, it says, And God blessed them and said to them, First time God has had direct speech with anything that he's created. Uh, God doesn't do this with the animals. Uh, He doesn't do that because man, you see, mankind is no mere animal. Uh, We're actually created above the animals. We're different to the animals. Mankind, humanity, is the pinnacle of God's creation. Uh, God speaks to man because it is man that God has created to be in relationship with him. Uh, There's a special thing going on between mankind and God. We're not just like the animals. We're not just the next thing that's evolved. Uh, And that's the very first thing that we learn about who we are. We are created. We are created for relationship with God. That's the first thing we learn about who we are. We are created for relationship with God. The God who created us, you see, he speaks to us. Uh, He gives us some commands. He gives those first people, Adam and Eve, some commands. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Go and have kids. Have fun. He tells them to fill the earth. And what that means, firstly for us, uh, is that as created beings in a relationship with God, uh, what we're called to do, what our response is supposed to be, 
Because we're supposed to listen to our Creator. We're supposed to hear His words and do them. Uh, God created us, so He has authority over us. He's allowed to tell us what to do. He made us. He's got authority. Uh, Because that's how it works, doesn't it? If you make something, you've actually got authority over it. You can tell it what to do. You can decide what to do with it. Uh, When I was in early high school, I can't remember if it was year 7 or year 8, I actually became a creator. I made something actually quite unimpressive. Uh, It was in woodwork class, and we had to just design something. So what I did was I got this big chunk of timber, and I got a chisel and a hammer, and I carved a very ugly human head. Um, it was not impressive. It wasn't my best work. Uh, my teacher, I think, probably saw it and wanted to chuck it in the scrap heap. But you know what? He couldn't because it wasn't his. He didn't have the authority to chuck it in the scrap heap. Uh, I could have. It was mine. I could decide what to do with it because I made it. I had authority over it. Uh, I could have sold it. It's surprising what passes as art these days. Um, but I didn't. I did what every good kid does with ugly wooden heads that they've made in year eight. I gave it to my dad for Father's Day. <laughs> and it's still on our veranda to this day. See, I made the head, so it was mine. Ugly as it was. I had authority over it. Similarly, God made us. So God has authority over us. Uh, when he speaks to us, we need to listen to him as our authority. We need to obey him as our creator. Uh, this leads us to our second point. Uh, that was the first point, that we are created. The second point is that we as humans, we are human, we are created for a purpose. Uh, if we're going to find out who we really are as people, uh, if we're going to find out why we're really here, then a big thing that's going to help us do that is to find out why God made us, what our purpose is in life. And those verses in Genesis chapter 1, they help us again. Uh, In Genesis 1, 28, uh, we've already seen that God spoke to mankind. Uh, So their first task, their first responsibility is to listen to God, uh, to obey his word. But then God goes on in, in verse 28, And he gives two specific tasks. They're pretty general, but they're two specific tasks that God gives mankind. Uh, And they start to actually help us understand our purpose as humanity. Firstly, verse 28, our humans are to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, We're to fill the earth. The first people, God says, he says, have kids. Have lots of kids. Uh, Raise kids. Have so many kids, in fact, that... You are fruitful and multiply, that you multiply over the whole earth. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Uh, What's the command? What's the purpose there for humanity? It's actually that the world would be full of people. Uh, We've got about 7 billion at the moment. Uh, God's original idea, his plan for people was that the earth would be full of people. One community of people, actually, who all listen to God and therefore they love each other properly. God wanted people who would listen to him, hear his word, 
and love each other properly. He wanted to create a community of people who love each other. Secondly, again, verse 28, uh, God commands mankind to subdue the earth. He says work it and care for it in chapter 2, verse 15. That kind of fleshes out the way we subdue it. We're not just to kind of bulldoze everything and take over it. No, we're to work it and care for it. But God's goal, you see there, it was not simply that Adam and Eve would sit in this little garden of Eden that God made for them and just drink tea and say, gee, it's a nice day today. No, they were actually meant to subdue the earth. As they had more and more kids, the garden was actually supposed to get bigger and bigger and bigger so that eventually the whole world was one community of people who listened to God and who loved each other properly. Fill the earth, subdue it. That was God's plan. What we see here, what we learn about humanity, is that fundamentally we are created for relationships. Uh, We are in relation to God, we're in relation to each other, and we're created in relation to the creation, to the world around us. Um, There's a bit of a diagram, I'll put this together, this might help you, you might want to draw that if you're a drawer. Uh, It kind of fleshes out a little bit of what I've been saying. See, firstly, we, mankind, are in relationship with God. Uh, We are to serve him obediently in everything we do, we're to listen to his word. Uh, Secondly, we're in relationship with each other. Uh, We're to love and serve each other. We're to work towards building loving communities of people. Thirdly, we're in relationship with the creation. Uh, God has made us rulers over it, Uh, so we're to use it in ways that actually help us build these loving communities. Uh, We're to use it wisely. See, the purpose of humanity is that we would live rightly within these different relationships in which God has created us. That's what flows out of this first chapter in the Bible, that we, that there would be a whole stack of people who would live rightly, one loving community over the whole earth, who love God, love each other, and look after his world properly. Problem is, and this is point three, we don't do those relationships very well, do we? Uh, instead of hearing and listening to God's word, instead of obeying him, we rebel. We sin. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3, the very next page in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they think that they know better than God. They think they know how to do life better without him. So they go and try and do their own thing. They sin. And we're just the same, aren't we? I mean, just... Let me ask you, how did you react when I told you before that um, because you're created, God has authority over you, that he can tell you how to live your life? What was your kind of gut reaction then? Did you kind of resist it? I do. Yeah? Yeah? Half and half? You're doing better than me. Um, yeah, we, we resist that, isn't it? That, you know what that's called? That's called rebellion. That's called sin. That's called not wanting God, our Creator, to have authority over us. Um, That's how we feel. It's in our hearts, isn't it? We want to rebel against Him. Uh, We think that we know best. We think that we know the good ways to live. Ultimately, we think that God isn't really good. We don't trust Him with all of our life. We don't let Him rule our life. So we rebel against Him in all sorts of different ways. 
Sometimes we just ignore him, get on with our own life. That's what I did when I first started uni. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family, uh, but I wasn't really Christian. I wasn't definitely wasn't living a Christian life in year 11 and 12. I would go out with my mates, drink way too much, turn up hungover uh, to church the next morning. I was a hypocrite. Uh, when I turned up to uni, I decided I would just ignore God, uh, that I would just put him on the back bench and leave him alone. That's one way of rebelling. Uh, can I encourage you not to do that? Don't just ignore God in your life. Uh, maybe for you it's more deliberate. Maybe you actually really shake your fist at God sometimes and say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do something my own way. And we just tell him to rack off. Back off, God, I don't want you in my life. However we do it, whatever that expression is, we're all rebels, aren't we? We all sin. We all prefer to follow our own kind of desires of our hearts instead of following God's word to us. And the reason we do this, the reason we actually rebel is because we're actually idolaters. And this is our first, our fourth point. Uh, we worship and we love things, idols, more than we love God. Uh, what is an idol, you might ask? Uh, well, an idol is not just something that might have existed thousands of years ago where people bowed down to a wooden pole. No, an idol is anything that captures anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that captures your heart, that captures your allegiance, and you'd rather follow it than follow God. That's what an idol is. Tim Keller, a preacher in New York, he says this, He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, uh, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant. I wonder what that thing is for you. Uh, Is it God? Is God enough for you? Are you finding your meaning and your purpose in him? Or do you look to find your value, your sense of worth in other things? Maybe it's in how you look. Maybe it's in what people say about you. Maybe it's in your grades, in the fact that you got got into this course that you're now in. Maybe it's the fact that you've got a boyfriend. Is that what makes you secure? Is that what kind of relieves your heart, that makes you feel like you've got value? What is it that you look to to feel significant and secure? If it's not God, then it's an idol and it will lead you into sin. Just think about a simple one for a moment. Think about the sin of lying, telling a lie. Do you know the reason you tell a lie is because you idolise something more than God? Uh, It might be human approval that you idolise, so you tell a lie because you didn't want people to think badly of you. It might be your own reputation. Uh, so you kind of tell a lie to cover yourself up, trying to preserve uh, that sense of identity that you have. Whatever it is, uh, if that's what you want, if that's what you idolise, then you'll tell lies in order to get it. That's how it works. Uh, anything that's not God, if it's an idol, 
but it'll lead us into sin. Anything that we're finding our safety and our security, our sense of value in, if it's not God, ultimately it will lead us into sin. And do you know what happens when we all kind of do that? When we all become idolaters, when we all slip into telling a lie here or cheating there and maybe stealing there or having some lust or adultery over there, when we do that, when we all do that, well, the world doesn't become the type of world that God created, does it? It doesn't result in a world of where people just actually get on and love each other. It results in the world that we've got now, a world where suffering and injustice just have taken over. Um, you've just got to turn on the news and you see what a terrible mess we've made of God's world. Why? Because we sin. Because we rebels, because we chase after idols. So the big question is, if we're all rebels, if we're all shaking our fists at God and told him to rack off in some way or another, what's he going to do about it? Uh, he created us to be in a loving relationship with him. He created us to love each other. Life's become pretty ugly. Those relationships have broken down. So what's God going to do? Is he just going to keep letting us mess up forever? Keep hurting each other? Keep rebelling against him? Well, no, God's not going to do that. In fact, God loves us. He loves his people, humanity, too much to just let that spiral of sin go on forever and ever. So what God says he's going to do is he says that one day he's actually going to call each one of us to account for our actions. Each one of us are going to have to sit in that chair, a little bit like what Dave said, and say, this is who I am. Because it matters to God. It matters to God how we treat him. It matters to him how we treat other people so poorly. God won't let our rebellion and our idolatry go on forever. No, instead, what God does is he does something very just. He does something very fair. What he does is he actually gives rebels exactly what they ask for. Uh, in rebelling against God, we're telling God to rack off, to leave us alone. And this is precisely what God says he'll do. Uh, for those who continue in sinful rebellion, God's judgment on rebels will be to withdraw from them. Uh, will be to cut them off from himself permanently. And since God is the source of life and everything good, what being cut off from God means is death and hell. Cut off from everything good, cut off from God. God's judgment against rebels is an everlasting, godless death. That's what we actually all deserve. We just don't like hearing it, do we? Every one of us created humans. We're all rebels in our hearts. We all felt it earlier, didn't we? Each one of us actually rightly deserves to be separated from God because we've broken that relationship with him. That is the consequence of sinful, foolish rebellion. But friends, that's not the end of the Bible. 
Uh, here's the good news. Point number five, God in his mercy and love has actually done something about it. God has done something so that we can be saved from that fate of separation. God has sent his own son Jesus into our world to rescue us. He sent Jesus on a rescue plan to win us back. When Jesus came, I don't know how much you know about Jesus, when Jesus came, he actually showed us what it's like to be truly human. The way he lived, he never rebelled against God. Remember that picture we had before? God, Jesus never broke that relationship. He always was obedient to his Father, always listened to him. And in doing so, he actually showed us how to love each other properly, didn't he? It doesn't matter what you know about Jesus, you'll know that he was a guy who actually knew how to love and care for people. He modelled that to perfection. And because Jesus wasn't like us, he wasn't a rebellious idolater, he didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve that punishment of separation from God, yet Jesus did die. Uh, Jesus went willingly to die on that cross. In fact, that was the whole reason he came, to come and die on that cross. Why? Well, the Bible rings with the incredible news that Jesus died as a substitute for us. He did a trade. It wasn't just that he was a carpenter. That was a joke. You got it? Thanks, Liz. It wasn't just that he was a carpenter. He did a trade. He swapped his life for ours. His death for our death. He was separated from God. He was forsaken as he died on that cross by his very own Father so that we don't have to face that, so that we can be back in right relationship with God. He was cast out. Jesus, who lived from all eternity in perfect relationship with his Father, he was cast out so that we could be brought back in. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this. It says, Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why Jesus died. He died to bring you back in relationship to God. He came to save us from that separation that we're all actually headed for. But not only that, Not only does Jesus' death save us and bring us to God, but Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose to new life, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended. And from there, when God finally calls each one of us to account for the way that we've lived our lives, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. For all those that have put their trust in him, for all those who come to him in in prayer and say, I know that I'm a rebel. For all those who have have said, Jesus, I know that I've sinned, but please, please forgive me. Please let your death pay for my sins. When you do that, when anyone does that, you know what happens? Everything changes. Everything changes in our life. God wipes the slate clean, like the Father in that parable about the prodigal son. As the son returns, the father just embraces him, doesn't remember any of the bad things that have gone on before. He wipes the slate clean. Jesus' death is the payment for our sins. So that God no longer sees us 
in our sinfulness, but he forgives us. He pours his spirit into our hearts. He gives us new life that starts now and lasts forever. And this is the last point. So when you put your faith in Jesus, when he gives you his spirit, it actually starts to transform the way you live. Uh, The minute you decide to receive Jesus as your saviour, the Holy Spirit is poured into your life. We don't see it. Often you can see the effects of it. Uh, But what what, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is this. He says says that we're actually remade when God gives us his spirit. He says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. A few verses previously he said this, For the love of Christ now controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying that when you realise how great Jesus is, when you realise how wonderful it is to be saved, that his death on the cross has paid for your sins, when you realise that, you no longer face that separation from God for eternity, then that will actually start to change your hearts. Uh, What you love will begin to change. Uh, Your life and the way you live will change. Remember earlier we talked about lying? Uh, talked about how we often lie because we love human approval or we love our own reputation, something like that. Uh, we lie because we love other things more than God. Uh, it's so easy for us to kind of fall for this idol of human praise, isn't it? Uh, I struggle with this one personally. I, I love affirmation. I love it when people say, Oh, good job, Steve. Well done. So it's tempting sometimes to kind of lie and talk yourself up, to deceive people in order that you might feel valued by other people. But when we've been saved by God, then there we see how valuable we really are, don't we? When we hear that word of God that tells us just how valuable we are, that God would send his own son to die for us, that he would die for us to win us back, then that actually starts to transform our hearts, doesn't it? That we would know how good it is to be saved. It actually starts to 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 fill up that vacuum of emptiness that we have in us, where we, we no longer need to crave value from the people around us and from other things that aren't God, because God gives it to us when we see him crucified in our place. And when we do that, God's spirit will work in us so that we actually start to love him above all else, so that we'll actually start to live for him because we love just being his. Uh, And do you know, I reckon if we all did that, if we all actually got on board with that, if we knew how good it was to be Christ's, if we all lived and loved like he did, then our world would be a far better place, wouldn't it? 
if we could live and love like Jesus did, like God made us to be. I don't know if I've answered your initial question about who you really are. Uh, I might have helped out in some ways. What I've really tried to do tonight is just tell you what Christians believe. Uh, Because that's actually at the heart of who we really are. If Jesus is the risen king of the universe, then who we are is bound up with who he is and what our relationship with him is like. Uh, Either you're his, either you've let him wash your sins away, wash you clean, or you're still in sin and you're still separated from him. So what we've seen tonight is that we're all created. We're all human. We're all rebellious. We're all idolaters. But here's where it starts to change. Uh, We can come to Christ and we can be saved and transformed and safe in him. Or we can resist him and we can stay separated from him. We can stay in our sin. When you break it down, we're actually one of either two people. We're either Christ's or we're in crisis. Uh, You're in crisis if you're still in your sin, if you're still separated from God and facing his righteous judgment. John 3.16 that we read earlier says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Sometimes I think we stop short when we only read John 3.16. If you're a Christian, uh, if who you are is Christ's, then let his Spirit transform your hearts. Uh, love like him. If you haven't been doing that lately, if you've dropped off from following Jesus, if you feel like you've just been flirting with sin and going back to that old nature of life, then can I remind you to go back to the gospel. Remind yourself of the wonder of Christ's love for you. Repent of your sin and be Christ's. Love him and live for him. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian person, can I just say to you that Jesus deeply loves you. He died for you. Uh, You don't have to try and be good. You don't have to try and make your life better to please God. No, if you want to be friends with God and on that final day have him say, welcome, come on in, then all you need to do is go to Jesus. Go to him in prayer and ask him for forgiveness. Say, thank you so much for dying in my place. That's what we all need to do. That's what we all need if we're going to avoid this state of crisis, of being separated from God. So can I encourage you tonight, if that's not you, can you go to Jesus? Come and talk to me if you don't know how to do that. Go to him, because whoever believes in him will not perish, 
but will have an everlasting life. How about I pray for us? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word helps us understand who we really are. Now when we break it down, when we understand that you entered our world to win us back, Father, we're either yours or we're not. We're either deeply, deeply loved and just so safe and secure in you, or we're still separated from you. Father, help us to see the wonder of Jesus. Help us to take hold of his salvation and live for him in all that we do. Amen.